0: welcome to the on centerline podcast a show where we discuss the trials and tribulations of learning to fly from both the student and flight instructor perspectives we feature real aviators in all different chapters of their careers talking about the things we all deal with but rarely discuss So join us as we take on the challenges, hardships, and celebrations that pave the runway to being a professional aviator as we strive to stay on Centerline. Hey everybody, welcome back. So we are continuing on today with our private pilot ACS review to make sure that you have all the tools you need to pass your private pilot oral exam. We just got done with our two-part weather section, and today we're moving on to task D, cross-country flight planning. So this is all about being able to plan and mitigate risk in the VFR environment. Looking at our objective line item, it says, to determine that the applicant exhibits satisfactory knowledge, risk management, and skills associated with cross-country flights and VFR flight planning. So that's our objective for this section. So let's get right into it with our knowledge items. And here it says the applicant demonstrates understanding of route planning, including consideration of different classes and special use airspace, or SUA for short, and selection of appropriate and available navigation communication systems and facilities. All right, so let's talk about this. Basically, whenever we're going to be planning a flight, we need to take several things into consideration when we're choosing the route of that flight. When I'm sitting down with my students to teach them the fundamentals of VFR flight planning, the first thing we have to do is, of course, decide on where we're going. Now, hopefully that's not too hard of a task. And once we have decided where we're going, what we do is we sit down with the VFR sectional chart. We're going to find our point of departure and our destination. And we're going to start by simply drawing a straight line from point A to point B. That would be a direct route if we were going to fly just direct to our destination. Now, these days, flying direct to your destination isn't all that uncommon thanks to GPS. But back before the days of GPS, it was not only uncommon, it was usually not even possible. And so we had our ground navigation aids that we'd use and we'd plan routes uh, along airways and things like that. And those are skills that are still important and necessary today. But first we're gonna draw this straight line from point A to point B, because that is going to be our ideal desired route if it were possible in the perfect world. So we're gonna start with our perfect situation and then we're going to look for all the reasons why we can't do that. So we're gonna be looking for things along our route that's gonna prevent us, or at the very least, be unwise for us to use that route. First and foremost, we're gonna start with terrain. Is there any significant terrain between our departure and our destination? Is there terrain that we just absolutely cannot get over due to the aircraft we're in and how high we would have to climb in order to do so? So in order to know that, you're going to know what altitude you're going to want to cruise at and then see if there's any terrain that would prohibit that altitude from being maintained. From there, we're going to look at airspaces both regular airspaces and as it states here in the line item, special use airspaces. Now, what are special use airspaces? Well, we're going to get into this more in our next section, our next episode, which is talking about the national airspace system. But basically, special use airspaces would be things like your MOAs, your prohibited zones, your restricted zones, uh, your alert areas, things like that. So we're going to identify any airspaces along our route that we either cannot go through or that we just simply don't want to go through. So after we figured out our terrain and airspaces along our route, we're going to look at the viability of available alternates along this route. Let's say in the best case scenario, there is nothing from a terrain or airspace standpoint that would restrict you from taking a direct route. But what if there's an emergency along the way. If this direct route has no viable alternates within a reasonable distance, then that's probably not the best route you'd wanna take, especially if you were gonna be doing this flight during non-optimal hours of the day, like at night, or perhaps during non-optimal weather conditions. So terrain, airspace, and alternates available are going to be kind of the three primary things that we're going to be looking at to decide how this optimal course of going direct from A to B needs to be adjusted. Now, some other things you might want to consider when deciding on this route is not only viable alternates in case you need to land or divert somewhere, but alternate forms of navigation. As I alluded to earlier, taking a direct route is really only viable if you're using GPS as your primary source of navigation. But what if you lose GPS or what if you're not planning to use GPS as your primary source? Certainly, if you were using pilotage where you needed to be able to identify landmarks and and other waypoints visually, that might make a big difference in the route you're going to take because the direct routing might not have any obvious landmarks. So your route is going to be largely driven by the landmarks that you're going to want to be looking for. If you are going to be navigating via ground-based navigation like VORs, then of course your routing is going to be largely driven by those airways and what VORs are available between point A and point B. But no matter what type of navigation you're planning to use initially, thinking about what happens if that navigation source disappears along the way. If you have some sort of equipment failure, or if the source itself goes out, GPS can go down, sometimes voluntarily uh, and sometimes non-voluntarily. But GPS can go away. VORs can go down. So having backup sources of navigation available to you and making a route that considers those backup sources is also a good thing to consider. All right, moving on to our next line item. This is altitude selection, accounting for terrain and obstacles, glide distance of the airplane, VFR cruising altitudes, and the effect of wind. So this is kind of something we want to be considering when we're choosing our route initially, like we were just talking about. So we're going to figure out how high we want to cruise, and this is going to be very much dependent on what airplane you're in. Now, most GA aircraft like to cruise somewhere between 6,000 and maybe 10,000, right in that range, certainly for the types of trainers that we're using at flight schools and things like that. If you have a more high-performance GA aircraft, then sure, you might get up a little bit higher, um, possibly even into the flight levels. But uh, for the most part, our little GA trainers are going to be flying below 10,000 feet. And so we're going to be looking at what altitude we're going to want to cruise at, and then refine that altitude based on, of course, the direction of flight. If we are flying a magnetic course that ranges anywhere between 360 and 179, we are going to fly an altitude that is odd thousands, so three, five, seven, et cetera, plus plus five hundred feet. Okay. Anytime we're flying under VFR flight rules, we're always going to be. Adding 500 feet to our cruising altitude. If you're flying a magnetic course between 180 and 359, that's going to be a that's going to be an even thousand plus 500. So 4,500, 6,500, 8,500, and so on. Now, also keep in mind that these altitudes are only necessary if you're above 3,000 AGL. So that's how we're going to choose whether we fly an even or an odd altitude, but then we need to consider what altitude we are actually going to need to be at to clear the terrain. Now simply clearing terrain is a lot different than perhaps what's required to give you adequate glide distance and time should you have any type of engine problem. As we always say, the three most useless things to a pilot are the runway behind you, the altitude above you, and the fuel left on the ground. So when it comes to altitude, if there's no reason why you cannot be higher, then you should be higher. Altitude gives you time. It gives you glide distance so that any problems that occur, you'll be able to glide further to a viable landing spot and give yourself more time to troubleshoot the issue. So part of your personal minimum should be how high do you want to be above the terrain you're going to be flying over? If you're planning to fly at 9,500 and your route is taking you over some terrain that gets as high as 9,000, are you going to be happy with just that 500-foot AGL portion of the flight? Or do we need to change the routing slightly so that we can keep at least maybe a 2,000-foot buffer? Now another thing to consider is what the winds aloft are doing. Because even though there might not be a reason why you cannot fly at, say, 9,500, if the winds at 9,500 were going to give you a 25-knot headwind and the winds at 7,500 were only a 10-knot headwind, well, the wind at 7,500 is going to give you much better fuel economy and it's going to allow you to get to your destination a lot faster So all considered, we want to first figure out if we're going east or west, so we know if we need to be at an even or an odd altitude. Then figure out what altitude we're going to need to be able to clear all the terrain along our route. Figure out what the winds aloft are doing and what winds at which altitude are going to give us the best fuel economy and time. And of course, we want to do our best to stay as high above the terrain as possible so that we can have as large of a glide radius as we can in the event of an engine failure. Ideally, in a perfect situation, you would never be outside of a gliding range from any airport at any time along your route. In other words, by the time you left gliding distance from one airport, you would be within gliding distance of another. Now, of course, this is not possible along many routes. There's not airports that tightly arranged around the country. But depending on where you are and where you're going, there very well could be just a line of airports along a certain route where if you fly the right altitudes, you can be within gliding distance at least a good majority of the time. All right, moving on to our next line item. This is calculating. Calculating is the line item, and then we have these sub-line items under calculating. So what is it we're calculating? And I'll just start off by saying this is probably the one area out of all of flight planning that pilots have the hardest time with, especially if you're not particularly good or intrigued by math because that's what this all is, all right? So we are doing calculations, and these calculations are going to involve time, time, climb, descent rates, course, distance, heading, true airspeed, ground speed. We're gonna be calculating an estimated time of arrival. Uh, We're going to be calculating our fuel requirements um, and reserves. So lots of calculating here that we're gonna be doing. All right, so first of all, let's just talk about time. Well, time is fairly easy to calculate uh, with a very basic equation. And that equation is time equals distance divided by speed now which speed are we using and this is very important because you're not just using your indicated airspeed we're using our ground speed because the ground is what we are measuring right we're measuring the miles over the ground so we need to be using our ground speed to get the right answer and to calculate our time properly so time is going to equal your distance divided by your speed so keeping it simple here if we're traveling 60 miles and our speed is 60 knots, okay? And this is 60 nautical miles, keep in mind, okay? That's another big mistake people make is they'll be measuring, for for instance, their distance from point A to point B in nautical miles. But let's say you're flying like a Cessna 150 that uses miles per hour. So then all of the numbers you're reading from the POH and things like that are going to be depicted in miles per hour, And if you start comparing or doing measurements with nautical miles and miles per hour, you're not going to get the right figures. So ultimately, it doesn't matter which figures you use. You could use statute miles or nautical miles, but you need to make sure that when you're doing all your planning, that it's all consistent across the board. All right. So let's just say we have to travel 60 nautical miles and we are traveling at 60 knots. Well, 60 nautical miles, divided by 60 knots is one, right? It's going to take us one hour. If we doubled that speed, if we were going 120 knots, 60 divided by 120 is 0.5, 0.5 hours, which is 30 minutes, okay? Then that's the other part is when you're calculating these things, and it's easy enough to do on a calculator, but you should also be able to do it with your E6B, And I'm not talking about an electronic E6B. I'm talking about your old whiz wheel, your manual E6B. And the E6B is actually an ingenious tool. I love the E6B. And it's actually quite simple to use with a little practice. The greatest thing about the E6B is that everything you want to know about it is written on it. It tells you how to use it. I know it can be a little overwhelming, but take 20 minutes, sit down with an E6B, and just read the instructions. If you're having problems understanding it, talk with your CFI. But once you get it, it's really quite easy. Whether you use an E6B, though, for this or just a regular calculator, it doesn't ultimately matter. You just need to know how to do it both ways. But half hour on 120 knots for 60 miles, that equation being time equals distance divided by speed, okay? One other thing just to keep in mind too is that when we are doing these calculations on the calculator, you're going to be getting an answer in tenths, which means that then you need to divide an hour into tenths, all right? And how long is a tenth of an hour? It's six minutes, okay? So when you say, uh, when you see 0. 0.4 as a answer to your time, 0. 0.4 of an hour you're going to take six, multiply it by four. Six times four is twenty-four. So twenty-four minutes. Okay. So just make sure you're doing that because if you try to make an hour uh, divided by ten, or or doing ten minutes, like you might, like your brain might go to, kind of naturally, uh, it's not going to line up. Okay. Because there's not a hundred minutes in an hour. There's sixty minutes in an hour. So divide sixty by ten gives you six minutes. Uh, for every 10th all right so calculating climb and descent rates again very specific to the aircraft you're in and it's going to be specific to your loading of that aircraft to the density altitude and the temperature outside okay and what your uh, field elevations at so You need to know all these things, and this is all information that you're going to be corroborating with your POH, getting the performance numbers out of that. We'll we'll talk more about that when we get into our performance section, um, which is going to be, I think, maybe two episodes from now. We're going to be talking about performance and limitations. But when we're talking about climb and descent rates, you know, descent rates are a lot easier than climb rates. Okay, You can pretty much go down at an unlimited speed. Not that you'd want to, but you could. So when it comes to descent rates, it's really up to you to decide how quickly do I want to descend or how quickly am I going to be able to descend based on the terrain that's between me and where I'm going. Uh, If you're going to a destination that's surrounded by higher terrain, or at least that you're going to have to cross some higher terrain from the direction you're coming from, you might not be able to start that descent as early as you want to. And therefore, when you are able to start the descent, you're gonna need to use a higher descent rate. But if there was no terrain considerations, then you know a nice 500 foot per minute descent for our GA aircraft tends to be comfortable. And so you'd simply figure out how much altitude you need to lose, and therefore how many minutes you'll need to allot for that descent. Then you'll simply start that descent that many minutes away from your destination. The climb rates are gonna be a lot harder Every airplane's gonna be limited at some point in how fast it can climb. And again, this is where knowing your aircraft, knowing your performance numbers, knowing how the airplane's loaded, doing your proper weight and balance, and knowing the density altitude is all gonna come into play. But essentially, once you do know those numbers, or at least have a a good estimation of them, you'd calculate it the same way. This is how many feet I'm gonna climb per minute. This is how many feet I need to climb total. And therefore, this is how many minutes I'm going to need to climb to this altitude. And this is where putting a top of climb and a top of descent as waypoints in your navigation log, in your nav log, comes into play. And it's very important because obviously there's going to be a huge change in speed at the moment we switch from a climb to a cruise. We might be doubling our speed. And therefore, the amount of time that we're going to take to get uh, to our destination is, is going to be you know, cut in half from that initial speed. So you can't use the same speeds in the climb portion as you do in the cruise portion. So that's why we have top of climbs and top of descents in our navlog because we need to account for the change in speed. Now, the change in speed from a top of climb to your cruise is going to be pretty significant. The change in speed from your cruise to your descent at your top of descent might not be as significant it might even be the same possibly you might just maintain the same speed uh, but those are the things you need to be considering so you get proper time estimations all right calculating course now of course I can't get into the details of necessarily count calculating a course over a podcast but this is where knowing how to use your e6b and your plotter on a VFR sectional is gonna be very important. Basically, we wanna make sure we know the different types of courses and what the difference between a course and a heading is. We have true course, true headings, magnetic course, magnetic headings. Then we have the difference between a heading and a track, okay? So you need to know the difference between all these terms. Basically, a heading is just that, it's where your head is pointed all right or in the case of the airplane where the nose of the plane is pointed it's what you're facing okay what you're looking at a course is the direction you're actually traveling because our aircraft don't move directly in the direction they're pointed like a car does a car always moves wherever the nose is pointed but airplanes have wind to contend with so you might be pointed one direction and actually be traveling in a completely different direction. So let's say your heading is 360, but you've got a wind component from the right pushing you to the left. So your course might be 330, which would be a pretty strong wind, pretty strong crosswind. And it might be any variable between that. You might be on a heading of 360 and on a course of 356. Could be very small or could be large. A track is the same thing essentially as a course, except the track is what you're doing right now. It's what you're tracking right now. A course is something you plan, and the track is what you're actually doing. You should always be tracking your course in the perfect world. Okay. But you always want the number, the magnetic direction of your track to match the magnetic direction of your course, and you wanna make sure that you are on your course, because just because your course, let's say should be 360, and your track is 360, doesn't mean you're necessarily on course. You could be parallel to your course, and that's where our navigation systems come in. You plan a route with a certain course, And you need to make sure you stay on that course. If you deviate left or right of the course, you need to make corrections to get back on course. But once you are on course, your track should match to the course. Headings are what we use to know where to point the plane in order to fly a certain track or along a certain course. And in order to do that, we need to know what the wind is doing. So figuring out what our magnetic course needs to be and then calculating in the winds along that magnetic course will tell us essentially what heading we need to point the plane at in order to fly that course. Now there's a difference between true course and true heading and magnetic course and magnetic heading. And this has to do with the difference between true north and magnetic north. So the true north pole is the point at which if you looked at the globe, the earth is spinning on its axis, where the axis of the earth goes all the way through from the north pole to the south pole, and the earth spins about that axis. However, our magnetic poles don't quite match up with our true poles. Our magnetic poles are a little further south, and and they actually move too, Uh, so When we're talking about true course or true headings versus magnetic course and magnetic headings, it's all about which pole we are talking about in relation to. And to figure out the difference, we have what are called isogonic lines or lines of variation, magnetic variation. These are depicted by dashed magenta lines on the sectional with a certain number of degrees. And it'll say degrees of east or west, And as we say, east is least, west is best. So for instance, here in the northwest where I am, we're at roughly uh, 15 degrees east. So because east is least, we're going to take our true course or our true headings, and we're going to subtract 15 degrees from those numbers to give ourselves our magnetic course or magnetic headings if it was 15 degrees west, west is best, we would add to it. So if we had a true course of 360, we would add 15, which would give us a true course of 015. But as it stands here uh, in the Pacific Northwest roughly, we're going to be subtracting 15. So 360 minus 15 is 345. So make sure you understand the differences between true course, true heading, magnetic course, magnetic heading, and what it means to track a course. All right, you'll also need to be able to calculate true airspeed and ground speed. And to that end, you wanna know the difference between all these speeds. We have multiple different types of speeds you're going to encounter. Uh, We've got indicated airspeed, we've got calibrated airspeed, we've got true airspeed, and we have ground speed, uh, just to name kind of the main ones there. And you need to know the difference between all of those and when and how they're used. So, in this case, using true airspeed and ground speed, we always calculate ground speed with true airspeed. Ground speed is true airspeed adjusted for wind. So, if you have a headwind, you're gonna subtract that wind component from your true airspeed to give you your ground speed. If you have a tailwind, you're going to add that wind component to your true airspeed to give you your ground speed. But your true airspeed is not the speed that is read on your airspeed indicator. The only time that's true is when you're at sea level under standard conditions, uh, basically on the ground for the most part. Okay, So uh, that's only true under, under perfectly standard conditions. Anything different from that and your true airspeed is going to vary from your indicated airspeed. And generally, as we go up in altitude, our true airspeed is going to become faster than what's indicated or more specifically, our indicated airspeed is going to become slower than our true airspeed because there's less air molecules as we go higher in the atmosphere and therefore there's less air going over the wings And that's what our indicated airspeed is essentially telling us. However, that doesn't necessarily change the speed at which we're traveling through the air. All right. Um, So make sure you understand the differences between true airspeed and indicated airspeed. Indicated is what the airplane thinks it's flying at based on how much air or air molecules are going over the wings or specifically into the pitot tube. The true airspeed is, as I like to say, it's how fast you're going past the clouds. Okay, that's your true airspeed. And then, of course, your ground speed, like we already mentioned, is that true airspeed adjusted for the wind component. Another thing to keep in mind when you're doing your flight planning is that calculating a true airspeed and the true airspeed you use for calculations aren't necessarily the same thing. Your performance charts in your POH give you standard true airspeeds that you can expect from your plane under certain conditions like power settings and altitude. And those are perfectly acceptable to use for flight planning purposes. Now, they may vary slightly as you actually get up in the air. And that's why it's important to then be able to calculate what your true airspeed actually is in the air based on the outside air temperature and uh, whatever altitude you're at and what power setting you're at if necessary. And that's why it's important to be able to calculate your true airspeed once you are up in the air based on the outside air temperature and the pressure altitude that you're at. Then you'll know if your initial calculations are accurate or if they need to be adjusted. Because remember, if you did initial calculations with a given true airspeed, which is gonna then give you a given ground speed, but you get up in the air and that true airspeed is different, well, that means your ground speed is going to be different. So those are all calculations you need to cross check and and they may differ from your planning stages to the actual flight, um, and you may need to make adjustments along the way. All right, our next line item says estimated time of arrival to include the conversion to universal coordinated time. Estimating the time of arrival is pretty straightforward if you once you do all these calculations and you know your ground speed Then you just take your distance Divided by that speed to give you the amount of time Therefore once you know the amount of time whatever time you start at You can add that amount of time to it and know what time you're going to end at or what time you should end at And that is your estimated time of arrival now Converting that to universal coordinated time or UTC time depends on where you are in the country or where you are in the world for that matter. Now here on the West Coast uh, in Oregon, we are usually minus eight hours from UTC time, meaning that whatever time it is here, we need to add eight hours to that to get UTC time. However, that's only during standard time. When we spring forward for daylight savings time in the spring, we become only seven hours behind, and so then we only add seven hours to get to UTC time. If where you live does not observe daylight savings time, it makes it a little bit easier because you're not having to change throughout the year, but for the majority of the states that observe daylight savings, you're going to be minus one value from UTC for part of the year and then minus an hour difference uh, during another part of the year. So make sure you know what your difference between UTC time is and make sure you know whether that's for standard time or daylight savings time. And finally, fuel requirements, including fuel reserves. So this is uh, pretty straightforward. All the information for the fuel burn of your airplane should be found in the uh, for your aircraft and you're going to need to find the performance charts that state fuel burn um, in your cruise charts for different altitudes and different power settings now the important thing too is that once you figure out a value for these fuel burns you need to make sure that you are actually using the altitudes and power settings that you calculated for if you decide in the moment or if for any reason you're not able to maintain the altitudes or power settings you initially planned for, you'll need to make sure that you double check those values for fuel burn and adjust as necessary. Make sure you know how much reserve you need, not only legally, which for daytime VFR flight is 30 minutes uh, past your destination. And that's so that would be to your destination plus 30 minutes in normal cruise flight. But that's a very low minimum. And I personally like to have at least an hour worth of reserve by the time my wheels touch the ground. For nighttime VFR flight, it's 45 minutes, but again, I like to up it to at least an hour for my personal minimums, and you need to decide what your own personal minimums are for that as well. Moving on, we have elements of a VFR flight plan. If you guys have not filed or filled out and filed a flight plan in your cross-country training, make sure you sit down with your instructor and have them show you how to do that. Now, in this day and age, we are very fortunate uh, to be able to do that digitally through many EFB apps like ForeFlight or online at uh, 1-800-WX-BRIEF. So there's a lot of options out there that makes it a lot easier than it used to be having to do everything by paper manually. But you still need to know the different sections uh, of what information needs to be filled out and what those pieces of information mean because there's a lot of kind of codes and uh, it can be a little cryptic if you're not uh, familiar with what you're looking at. Another thing to keep in mind whenever you're filing a flight plan and whenever you're dealing with flight service or anything like that, you need to make sure you're using your full appropriate tail number. That means including the N, the November, at the beginning of your tail number because flight service, you know, they deal with flights from all over the world and they need to know what country you're coming from. They need to know whether you're a military or civilian aircraft. And so providing that full tail number, November, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is, uh, tells them that. And if you just were to put just the numbers or whatever, uh, they're going to come back and ask you, they're going to need it um, to have that November there. So make sure you're using the full call sign, the full tail number uh, for your registration. And then when it comes to the procedures for activating and closing a VFR flight plan, again, we're very fortunate to be able to do this digitally. Uh, ForeFlight allows you to do it um, in the app there. But I definitely encourage you, if you have not done so already, open and close a flight plan with flight service. You can either do it in the air on the radio frequency, or you can do it on the ground over the phone. I encourage you to try it both ways so you know how that goes. Uh, they're great people, it's very easy, it's not scary or intimidating. You just let them know your tail number and that you'd like to open the flight plan. Uh, and then same thing when you're done, you let them know your tail number and you like to close the flight plan. But uh, you wanna make sure that you're getting experience in doing uh, these procedures in all the different ways that are available to you, whether it's digitally, over the radio or by phone. And one last note about your VFR flight plans, part of the information they're going to request is your time of departure. And it's very important that you give them an accurate time of departure. And if that time of departure turns out to be delayed or possibly early, it's important that when you do activate your flight plan, you update that time of departure with them because otherwise they might assume that the time of departure was uh, what was filed, and that could be, you know, possibly significantly different from what the actual time of departure was, which means that your estimated time of arrival could be very different from what it was. Um, and they might begin to get worried if you show up significantly past the time that you stated you would be uh, arriving. So make sure those times are up to date and accurate. All right, moving on to our risk management portion. Basically, the risk management portion for our cross-country flight planning is all one word, and that is PAVE, our PAVE acronym, which I've mentioned in previous podcasts is my favorite acronym. We've already talked about it a little bit. Um, But, you know, the PAVE acronym is so great because if you use the PAVE acronym beyond just You know this portion. It it mentions it specifically in the risk management portion here uh, for the cross-country flight planning. But you can use it as a structure for the oral portion of your exam. And if you did that, eighty to ninety percent of the whole oral exam is going to fall in some way underneath the PAVE acronym. As I say, the PAVE acronym is the acronym to rule all other acronyms. And you know, if we're looking at P, the pilot. We're talking about things like I am safe. We're talking about the required documents the pilot needs to have. We're talking about his currency versus his proficiency, talking about his familiarity with the aircraft he's flying uh, or she's flying. And so among all those things, that's pretty much everything that comes into play for a pilot. And if we're going back to our first section, uh, task A in the uh, ACS pilot qualifications, like that is all falling under P of the PAVE acronym. The A would be our next section, task B, which is airworthiness, because it's all about the aircraft. The aircraft, we're we're looking at acronyms like aviates for our inspections, aero for our documents, a tomato flames or part 91205 for our required equipment and, and what to do if that equipment's not working, right, our inoperative equipment. And then Well, we're looking at just doing a proper pre-flight to our aircraft to ensure that it's up to our standards of safety as pilot in command. So that's going to cover most everything for the aircraft and airworthiness. Then we have V for environment. And the environment, the acronym we use is Northwest Craft. For those of you not familiar with Northwest Craft, this is the acronym relating to the regulation 91-103, pre-flight actions. These are the actions that every pilot must take before departing on a flight that is going outside the vicinity of an airport. What's considered outside the vicinity of the airport? Well, if you ask me, it's out of the pattern. So if you're going on any flight that leaves the pattern of the airport, you need to do all these things. And this is outlined once again in 91-103, n is notams you need to know all notams in your area any notices to air missions uh, that could affect you and your flight w is weather okay we just got through talking two episodes on weather uh, that we just got through talking about and then k is known atc delays now known atc delays really usually uh, will pertain to ifr flying not so much for vfr flying But there could be certain things that uh, could affect your departure or arrival. And then we have R, which is runway lengths of intended use. And when I say intended use, that means not just for your uh, departure and destination. That is for every single airport in between that you might use as an alternate. Okay. And that brings us to our next letter, A, for alternates available. Okay, you want to have as many alternates available as possible, and you want to have all the information on those alternates as you can get frequencies, runways, runway lengths, uh, elevations, pattern altitudes, all that stuff. And that information should be written out on your Navlog. Most Navlogs have a giant section for just notes. And I encourage you to use that note section to write down every single airport between your departure and destination that is a viable alternate for you and write down the runway numbers, the runway lengths, the traffic pattern altitude, along with whether it's left or right traffic, the ATIS frequencies, the tower frequencies, if applicable, or the CTAF. Put all that information right on your nav log for every airport that you could possibly use as an alternate so that if the time comes where you do need to divert, you don't have to search for that information. It's already right there for you. All right, moving on from A, we have F, which is fuel requirements. We just talked about that. Not just what is legally required, but what are your personal minimums for the amount of fuel and what alternatives you have for fuel. If you found yourself uh, getting Lower on fuel en route than you expected. What other airports along the way could you stop at to get more fuel and make sure that those airports actually have fuel and that nothing's out of service or unusable? And then we have T, our takeoff and landing distances. This is straight from our POH performance numbers. This is about knowing your airplane. It's about knowing your the scenario you're in, you know, how heavily loaded are you. It's about knowing the density altitude and the conditions at the airport. Okay, but you want to make sure that the runway lengths for the runways that you're at are greater than the takeoff and landing distance is required. And then beyond that, making sure that your climb rate after takeoff is going to allow you to clear any terrain or obstacles in the area. Okay. So that's all about performance and knowing uh, what to expect out of your airplane under the conditions present. So Northwest craft is your environment. And that again is, it's not just the physical environment. It's the operational environment that we are in. Okay. Okay. And then finally, external pressures. External pressures are one of those silent killers in aviation. The things that push us to do things, sometimes unwittingly, that we normally wouldn't do. It's that get there itis, all right. Uh, and it's it's that it's that desire not to let the people you're with down. Bottom line is, when it comes to general aviation, you never have to be anywhere. You. Always need to make sure you have an out. You need to make sure you have a plan B, a backup. You never want to put yourself in a position where getting in that airplane and going flying is your only option to achieve the goals or the necessities for that day. You know, for planning a trip, if it's a trip in which you could possibly drive, great, Make a go-no-go decision in time ahead of the flight to where you can drive if necessary. Now, if the trip is longer than is feasible to drive, book an airline ticket. Book an airline ticket ahead of time. Pay for a refundable ticket or at least uh, a ticket that can get credited to your account if you need to cancel on the day of. If the weather is good enough for you to fly yourself, call the airline, cancel the ticket, You'll keep the credit, you'll use it in the future, and you'll go fly. But if the weather isn't good enough for you or your personal minimums, you just get on that airliner and uh, you go on your way. So that's just some examples of ways to give yourself plan Bs and to never find yourself in a position where getting in that small general aviation aircraft is your only option. All right, next line item of a risk management is limitations of air traffic control services. So this would include things like knowing um, whether or not radar is available in the area you're going to be flying in. If radio uh, contact is going to be available, there are certain areas of the country where unless you're pretty high at a certain altitude, you can't get radio reception um, and radar isn't available. This is also knowing the difference between a flight plan and flight following. When you file a VFR flight plan, that sets up a potential response from emergency services. If you don't arrive at your destination, okay? You don't make it to your destination. They don't hear from you. You go down somewhere. They're gonna send people out looking for you. Flight following, as great of a service as it is, is never a substitute for a flight plan. If you are on flight following and you go down somewhere, no one's going to come looking for you. They're going to maybe wonder why you stopped talking to them and chalk it up to a radio failure or just a pilot who didn't care enough to cancel services, but that's it. They're not going to come looking for you. So flight following should certainly be used and it should be used in conjunction with a flight plan but understand that just having flight following is not the same as actually filing and opening a VFR flight plan. And then the last item here under risk management is improper fuel planning. We've kind of beat that horse to death already, just making sure you have not only legal minimums, but meet your own personal minimums and have plenty of options for uh, alternate fuel stops along the way should you need them. Also make sure that the places you are planning for those fuel stops actually do indeed have fuel because it is not uncommon for you to show up at a place who claims to have fuel or is supposed to have fuel. And they're either out of fuel or the pumps are down for one reason or another. All right, guys, wrapping up this section with the skills that you're expected to demonstrate. It says you are expected to demonstrate the ability to prepare, present, and explain a cross-country flight plan assigned by the evaluator, including a risk analysis based on real-time weather to the first fuel stop, okay? So the DP is gonna give you a scenario. They're gonna say, hey, you and me are taking this flight from your home airport to this airport. And uh, he's gonna give you some loading information for weight and balance. And you have to plan the flight as if you're really gonna take it. And then uh, you'll talk through that planning in the oral, okay? And then when you get to the flight portion, uh, at least most of the time with the DPs I'm familiar with, you're really going to depart your airport as if you are departing on that cross-country flight. And this is oftentimes where you're going to demonstrate your pilotage and dead reckoning skills, and you're going to take the flight to the first few checkpoints, all right? So to that end, you want to make sure your first one to three checkpoints are closer than they usually would be. Plan two to three checkpoints in the first 10 to 15 miles from your home airport, because You have to demonstrate pilotage and dead reckoning. You have to show that you can hold a heading and hit a waypoint. And if you have to fly 30, 40, 50 miles away to do that, (laughs) that's a big waste of time. All right. So plan a couple checkpoints in the first 10 to 15 miles so that the examiner can see that you know how to properly plan and execute a flight plan with pilotage and dead reckoning and then they can give you a diversion and you'll demonstrate the diversion skills and uh and that part's done all right the next line item says apply pertinent information from appropriate and current aeronautical charts chart supplements notams relative to the airport runway and taxiway closures and other flight publications all right, so making sure you have up-to-date charts is important. If you have a paper chart that's out of date, I would not necessarily uh, go and get a new one unless you really want to. As long as you have a digital chart to back it up that is current, that's perfectly adequate. But it's not necessary, especially if it you know the chart just expired last month or whatever, uh, to, it's not necessary to go get a brand new chart just to have an updated paper chart but you should have a paper chart and um, if it's not updated to the latest version at least make sure you have a digital version that is up to date that you can corroborate and correspond to make sure you also have your airport diagrams and that you've briefed not just the flight but that you've briefed your taxis both at your departure airport and your arrival airport your destination airport this day and age, guys, it's so easy to just have all these documents digitally, which you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I always make sure my students have a VFR sectional chart because that's what they're doing their flight planning on. But beyond that, when it comes to airport diagrams, uh, the chart supplement and things like that, it's perfectly fine just to have digital versions of those. All right, two more line items here. The next one, create a navigation plan and simulate filing a VFR flight plan all right so you just need to be able to uh, do this to show your work basically this is going to be your nav log and all the things that we just got through talking about and then you would simulate filing a VFR flight plan not not everyone a DP has you do this but they might ask you questions about that VFR flight plan so you just want to be ready to answer those and then lastly recalculate fuel reserves based on a scenario provided by the evaluator again that can vary this can be part of the diversion process okay when they say hey and we need you to divert to this place they're going to ask you how much fuel do you need to get there Um, how does that affect your your current reserves so whatever scenario they give you just be able to kind of run those calculations uh, if not in your head uh, using a calculator or a flight computer it's usually pretty straightforward pretty easy Uh, it's always about okay how much time is it going to take me to get there How much does my fuel burn? How much fuel will I use over that period of time? And then what does that leave me with? All right, guys. Well, that will about do it for our cross-country flight planning. I hope you got something out of that and uh, that this podcast has been helpful. Please uh, make sure to follow the show. Uh, We're going to have our next episode coming out soon with Uh, task e national airspace system we're going to be talking all about the national airspace system so we will see you then i really appreciate your support and you spending this time with me and we'll see you next time on centerline